The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Hey, you guys having a lot of issues with uh, automated calls these days? That's the weirdest damn thing, man. Half my day, I've just been fielding calls from someone telling me that I've won something. Mm, makes me wonder if somebody signed me up. Is it one of you guys? Very upset with you right now. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I'm Dan Bespris. It's a hoop ball presentation. Thanks for listening, everybody. I had a lot of fun on yesterday's podcast, kind of looking back at it and sizing up what we've been doing with these lessons learned. These are incredibly valuable for me. I hope they work likewise for you guys as you're coming up with your specific draft strategy. And we've built upon, and and this is sort of incumbent upon me to actually take notes on this stuff going forward, because I don't remember all of the exact lessons we've gone over after each of the last few seasons has ended, and I didn't make it clear in the in the write-up on the episode either, but certainly so far this post-mortem period, or whatever you want to call it right now, the, the, the plans we've had involving sprucing up our last 72, that was yesterday's episode, sprucing up the 50 to 70 range of drafts, and really right around the 60 marker, and then homing in on the usage function and not getting too cute with stuff. That's been, I think, a really nice cross-section of lessons learned from a season gone by. We're also uh, had some fun talking about the Last Dance episode five and si- episodes uh, five and six. Shout out to our buddy Greg Mraz. A Hoopball Bulls episode dropped earlier today. No, excuse me, that was actually late yesterday. Breaking down those most recent two episodes of The Last Dance, that is at HoopBallBulls on Twitter. Follow them right away, and you can see all the podcasts posted there. Then you can find the links through iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Today, we pivot back into the post-mortem season. We left off on Friday with the Charlotte Hornets, so we're floating through the Southeast Division, and we'll just continue to uh, attack that piece by piece today. We've covered Orlando, we've covered Charlotte. It's a weird division for a number of reasons. And so there isn't any true rhyme or reason to how we're going through this thing. You might have thought I'd just knock out the Florida teams one after the other, but no. I've selected not to. So the question today, what direction do we go? Do we stay in Florida or I should say go back to Florida and handle the heat? Do we roll up to Washington? Do we tackle Atlanta? I find Atlanta to actually be generally the most boring of the three, although they did have a midseason trade that kind of shakes things up a little bit. I find the heat to be arguably the most convoluted of the three, and the Wizards sort of this brand new... I don't want to call him a monster, but just this brand new set of weird. And so anywhere you go in the rest of the Southeast Division, you're going to get something strange. But I think today we're going to go to Miami. We're going. We're taking our talents to South Beach on today's episode. And and I, I 
I, again, there's no reason that we're doing it in this particular order, but that's where we ended up. So Miami is going to be a tough one to break down as we work from top to bottom as well. I know that's sort of our standard fare on these things, but there are a lot of little nuances to go over, especially once you clear the top two. So what we'll probably do with the Heat is we'll assess the top two, namely Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and then there's this big clump of sometimes useful, sometimes not guys that one of them, of course, involved in a midseason trade. You've got young guys. You've got undrafted young guys. You've got old dudes that can't stay healthy. It, the Heat have everything, and when you have everything, you sort of simultaneously have nothing. But we're not at that point yet. We are in the part where they do sort of have a few very obvious things, but let's break down those things before we get on to the other things. Thing number one, the alpha thing in Miami, is uh, Jimmy Buckets. 54 games played. He did miss time throughout this year. In fact, started the season needing some personal time. I believe it was the birth of a child, if I'm remembering correctly. I may or may not be. But ultimately came back and posted pretty grand numbers this year. If lacking in a couple of spots, and you know, there's a little bit of nitpicking on my part going on here with Jimmy Butler because overall it was a success of a season, but the missed games is a pisser. He missed 11 out of their 65 games, so that's a little bit less than 20% on that front. That's looking at about 15 games missed over the course of uh, the entire season, so that's not nothing. You know, he, he wasn't really, he wasn't on track to clear 70 games, could have, but certainly wasn't on track to. Uh, field goal percent was bouncing around a little bit. Ultimately, it ended up pretty close to what his career mark is. In fact, he's within like a hundredth of a point of his career field goal percent. I think the reason I call that a disappointment is that there have been seasons where he's taken markedly higher numbers of three-pointers and actually shot the ball better on a higher volume. This is one of his lowest volume seasons of his career which is fine because he made up for it in other categories. But, you know, if you're comparing it to, say, the last time he had a really strong assist season, that was back 2016-17 under Fred Hoiberg in Chicago, he also took three extra shots a game and averaged four extra points a game that year. So by a couple of metrics, this was a weird year for Butler. His steals and his blocks were fine. His turnovers never got that high, despite being the team's primary ball handler. Assists were good. Rebounds were high. Uh, free throw volume was majestic at 9.1 a game. Percentage was a little bit lower than it had been uh, over the last few years, basically, at 83.3. I think we thought that would be maybe more like 85, but either way, it's it's a net positive. And then the field goal percent, a lower volume, 45.5. It's not going to hurt you, really, and you weren't expecting him to help you in that respect. But certainly if you were getting this level of passing, I think there was a hope that maybe the field goal percent would be a tiny bit higher. But when you're going to a place to be the alpha dog, when your opponent is game planning for you, you also kind of have to build in a little bit of that field goal percent knock. So overall, a a solid year for Jimmy Butler, who's I don't think ever going to play most of the games in an NBA season and I'd say again, but he really hasn't ever played most of the games in an NBA season. He had 76 that last year under Fred Hoiberg. He had 82 his second season in the league, but he played only 26 minutes a game. Tom Thibodeau then 
pretty much exploded his body, and he's been kind of playing body catch-up over the last four years ever since. That year under Hoiberg was about as close as he's been to healthy at, at any point since he's played normal starters minutes. This is a lot. That's a lot of numbers, a lot of digesting to just say, look, this is the leader on a team. He was generally drafted on the turn, and he ended up pretty much being ranked on the turn. He was a hair lower than that because of games missed. He was number 16 in nine category by totals, despite being number 13 by averages. His teammate, Bam Adebayo, who was far lower on the totem pole by averages, but played in all 65 games, you know, therein lies the rub with what does it mean to actually play in all the ball games. Still, you got what you wanted to out of Butler. Low three-pointers, points, boards, assists, steals, free throw percent, efficiency uh, from a low turnover perspective. Overall, he was a guy that hit his mark and as someone that, again, was getting drafted near the turn. If you get someone near the turn and they perform near the turn, that's a success. I know you guys are like, well, aren't you, don't you want to get someone in that neighborhood that's going to overperform their draft slot? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like uh, Jason Tatum, who's a first-round pick, first-round value this year after being drafted two and a half rounds later than that. Or, or John Collins, who missed a bunch of time, but, or Hassan Whiteside. Generally, though, if you draft somebody and they get near where they were drafted, that's a win, particularly early because there just isn't that far to go in front of where they were. You know, Jimmy Butler was clumped, basically, with Bradley Beal, LeBron James, Jason Tatum, Chris Paul, and Joel Embiid in kind of this weird pocket of, uh, what the hell did I say, six guys that were all ranked pretty damn close together. One or two games here and there could have swung Butler to number 9 or 10, to 10, I guess we could say, on a per-game basis, or down as low as 15. But that's the thing. If he was bad, if he had a rough year and you drafted him at 13, he could very easily end up at 40. But if he had a good year, a best-case scenario is probably like 8th. And it's not that you're missing out on potential upside there because there pretty much isn't anybody you draft at 13 that could end up inside the top 5 consistently. Those guys are generally gone by the time you get to that point, especially once you run it out over an entire season. There just isn't that much room to move up when you're drafted inside the top 15. So you just want someone who's going to be there. And that's why we would have liked a couple extra games out of Butler. Uh, but to some degree, we're nitpicking just a little bit. Bam Adebayo. He was the rare combination of a buzz guy who got overdrafted and then somehow managed to hit that mark. That's hard to do. I mean, this is a guy that was getting talked up the entire offseason. The entire offseason. His ADP is listed at 55, but there is not a league on planet Earth, at least not with mildly competitive fantasy players or better, where he went that late. None. Zero. He went at 30 in one of my competitive leagues. I mean, we're not we're not talking about 55 and a half. We're not even talking about close to 55 and a half. This is a dude that was going in the 30s pretty consistently as late as maybe like 41 or 42. That's about as far as you were ever seeing him drop. So 
as you guys might recall, coming into the season, my thought was, oh, this is a guy, if his ADP is 56, I mean, that's a that's a great spot to be able to get that guy, but he wasn't going to fall that far. When he was going in the 30s, I, I believe on this podcast, we said, look, that's pretty damn early. You're wiping out a lot of his value. And it did, really. But we need to describe him in a couple different ways. Way number one is if we forget about the fact for a minute, and I know this is this is just analysis sake, but if we forget for a minute that he played in all 65 games for the Heat, he was number 39 by averages in nine category leagues. Got off to a really rough free throw shooting start on the year that trended up, that trended to towards improvement as the season went on. He shot 71-ish percent over the last uh, uh, roughly third of the season before it shut down. And most of his value was basically because the other stuff for him pretty damn consistent all season long about 16 points about 10 change rebounds you know four five six assists any given couple week stretch over a steal over a block good field goal percent more like 66 67 percent from the free throw line for a while and then up towards 71 ish for uh, a stretch towards the end of this campaign but and this is why bam Adebayo can both be considered a win and a loss at the same time i'm gonna go ahead and call him a win for those that drafted him, which is a lot of people at Hoopball. It's one of those weird ones where I was I was kind of butting heads a tiny bit with the Hoopball at large, and we both have our claims to fame on this one. In For Hoopball, for the rest of us over here, the rest of the guys that, you know, we'll, we'll argue about players every once in a while. By the way, I, I want to go on record as saying we never said he wasn't going to have a really good year, I went on record as saying I thought he was getting pushed up the draft board too far. And other folks at Hoopball were like, he's getting pushed up the draft board, but it ain't far enough. From a per-game standpoint, I was more or less right. Because teams were spending about a 35th, 30th, 35-40 pick on him, and he ended up near 40, sort of the back end of that range. If he fell past 40, obviously he ended up as a, a narrow win on a per-game basis for you guys. On a totals basis, well, I just got kicked right in the nads because he showed this year that he has the 10th category. And he's done it now two seasons in a row. He played in all 82 games last year, and he played in all 65 games for the Heat this year. He is currently the Iron Man of the NBA. This is, by the way, despite reports that he's out, you know, hamming it up and partying, staying out late. He's got the Wolverine quick recovery genome. So Adebayo, who played in every single game by totals, was actually number 12 this year. So a massive, a massive gold star victory by totals, which, as we've talked about before, are really important for earlier picks and for weekly leaks. And he qualifies for relatively early pick in almost all formats. And if you have him in a weekly league, he ended up as a colossal win. So I'll take a lowercase l on this one for saying I thought he was getting pushed up the draft board too high because, I'll admit it, I, I didn't think he was going to play in every single ball game. Not for any reason other than the fact that most guys just don't. But you know what? He had a four, five, six game head start on almost everybody else in the NBA at this point. So you throw 
another 80 points, another 50 rebounds, another 20 to 25 assists, another six steals and eight blocks on top of what he would do if he had missed five or six, four or five or six games. And he gets that extra little kick in his numbers. And that's what makes Bam Adebayo special in addition to the other stuff. Obviously, they run their offense through him uh, a lot. Five assists a game is a big deal. Gets steals, gets blocks, field goal percent, points, rebounds. He does a lot of things really, really well. He has a nice future as a fantasy asset. And if his free throw percent could ever consistently move up the boards a little bit, well, then his per game numbers probably sit inside the top 30 on a uh, on a day-to-day basis. And that makes the totals a lot easier to sustain, even if he happens to miss a game or two here and there. As far as next year goes, and again, talking just about the two stars on this Miami team before we venture into the muck a little bit with the uh, Duncan Robinsons, the Jay Crowderses, Derek Joneses, Kendrick Nunn, Goran Dragic, Tyler Hero, Kelly Olynyk, a lot of these names floating around on the heat. As long as we're really just localized right now on the stars, we should usually ask ourselves, what does it mean for these guys going forward? Well, you'll probably see Jimmy Butler drafted in the same spot and perform at about the same level. I don't, I mean, he is who he is at this point of his career. There's not a lot of upside or downside to Jimmy Butler. You know what you're getting. He makes a really nice pairing in the first round with someone who hits three-pointers or someone who has a really strong field goal percent because he does a little bit of everything. You put Jimmy Butler with a center, you're lacking a point guard, but you've got a guy who assists, and that rounds out things like blocks, field goal percent, rebound boost. He's just a really nice guy to have early, Jimmy Butler is. You know, you just... You know, he's not a, a standard pairing type guy because he just sort of goes all right with pretty much anything. What if you want point guard after him? Someone that hits threes and gets assists, and well, then you're lacking in blocks, but hell, again, Butler covers a lot of that stuff. Now, as far as Bam Adebayo goes, this one's a big question mark for me because, you know, we see guys that have these types of years. The, I, I really wonder if people are going to adequately analyze the, the gap between totals and per-game numbers. And a lot of it's going to come down to how the big box sites catalog him for next year as well. Is he going to be pre-ranked 13 based on his totals output this year? Is he going to be pre-ranked closer to 30-something based on his per-game numbers? Because it does feel like there's actually a little bit of room for improvement. He's still only in his third year. There's an opportunity for him to maybe do a little bit more on offense get that 11 shots up to 12. And it's not that it needs to necessarily come at the expense of anyone else because this team has so many guys that they play reasonable minutes that to say, oh, well, one guy's just going to fall into additional usage, uh, it's a little bit short-sighted. It doesn't really work that way. It's going to come down to whether or not Adebayo decides he wants to do more on the offensive end. Does he want to do more? Because... You know, the only guy on this team that's really making any, that's taking, I should say, a decent chunk of shots and almost definitely won't be there next year is Goran Dragic. Yeah, there are other moving pieces on this team, and some of those guys are taking a few shots a game, but Dragic is taking 12 shots a game, and his contract is up. His $19 million is coming off the books. That's that's an easy, put that money somewhere else for Miami situation. 
So do any of those shots go to Adebayo? I, I honestly have no idea. But even if it goes up by one, that's a big deal for someone who's a high percentage guy. When he's averaging about one and a half points per field goal attempt. So, you know, add one more attempt, 16.2 points goes up closer to 18. That's not nothing. Little bits, little things make a big difference. 69% free throw, could that get to 71, 72? He's got a pretty clear path to go from 39 to right around the edge of the top 30 on a per-game basis. The question is, does he fall that far, or is this a guy who gets drafted in the second round next year? I'm inclined to think he gets a tiny bit overdrafted, but I really don't know. Because it this that 10th category we talk about, the games played, makes a, makes a massive difference in how guys get analyzed. But as per usual, we'll keep an eye on it. Okay, let's get into the dregs a little bit, and that's not fair because some of these guys actually put up pretty damn good seasons, and Duncan Robinson was actually one of the better fantasy pickups this year. I have no idea what that dude is going to be next season, and I'm betting he's one of those guys that just quietly had a solid year that might not even get drafted next year. He might be one of those guys that just doesn't even get drafted because his season was so selectively focused on three-pointers. He really did nothing else. Duncan Robinson is a one-trick pony. He's a crap ton of three-pointers without hurting your percentages. There's no defensive stats. There isn't much in the way of scoring. And he's hitting 3.73s a game, and he's averaging 13.3 points. 3.7 times 3 is almost 13.3 points. I mean, this dude was taking almost every single shot from downtown. He's a good foul shooter, but didn't get to the line. Super low turnover, so that certainly helps him in nine category leagues. But he also has, at least this year, the 10th category. Played in all 65 games. So by totals... He actually ended up having a really good year. Duncan Robinson was number 59 by totals. But we've talked about this before. He's at something. He's just inside the top 100, uh, depending on what website you're looking at. He's ranked anywhere from 90 to about 96. And we've talked about this before. Number one, that does make him someone that should have been rostered and started all season long. Inside the top 100, if you're ranked in the, in the double digits in a 12-team league, you should be on a team and you should be in the lineup every day. Bar none. No exceptions. Okay, one exception. The exception is, if you're like three days from the end of the season, you have a massive lead in three-pointers, you could sit him in favor of somebody else if you're using up a game's played, something like that. But that's, I mean, this is that's nitpicky stuff. In a vacuum, all things equal, anyone ranked in double digits for the entire season should be started. That said, he's not that far from falling outside of the start-every-day grouping. Every time it seemed like he was going to fall outside that grouping, he went on a heater, such as the up and down of a long season and the sort of streaky hot and coldness of a three-point shooter. In fact, he was outside the top 100 as of March 2nd, and then March 4th, 6th, and 8th, the Heat played Orlando, New Orleans, and Washington – And Duncan Robinson hit 24 three-pointers in those three games. Scored 27, 24, 23 points. Ended up with 14 rebounds, 6 assists, 2 blocks, 2 steals. And as I mentioned, 24 damn three-pointers. So, you know, and that's the beauty of being ranked in that really anything from about 
85 to 130, you can bounce around fast with a couple of big or small ball games. If he followed that up with a goose egg, he could have easily fallen outside the top 100 in one night. The thing about guys in that range is, number one, they're hard to start every single game if you're watching fantasy as closely as we do. Because you see these games where, you know, February 29th, March 2nd, Duncan Robinson had 10 points, then 9 points in those two games. Uh, Six total rebounds between the two days and five total three-pointers. And that's basically it. He had one steal. Nothing else. Literally nothing else. No assists. No turnovers. No blocks. And then you see those two games, you're like, uh, is this, should I have maybe sat him for a day? Like, they played Milwaukee. Maybe I should have sat him against Milwaukee. But Orlando, their defense was supposed to be good, and then he came out and had nine three-pointers there. So you kind of, it's the Danny Green phenomenon where with guys like this that are ranked around 90, you generally have to just close your eyes and look at what they've done over a month. And that's the case with a lot of guys ranked around 90. There there are some exceptions there, like De'Aaron Fox, who had a really rough stretch, was injured, and then was sort of getting hot. But the rest of the guys in that range, uh, Chris Dunn, just close your eyes for most of this year and assume that at the end of a month he's going to get you 30 steals. Jeremy Lamb, Jared Allen, Paul Millsap, Boyan Bogdanovich, Luke Kennard when he was healthy. These are guys where, for the most part, you could pull him in and out of your lineup every day if you wanted to. You could do the start him when they're hot, sit him when they're cold thing, but you're probably going to miss. And so it's generally easier to just close your eyes, flip them out there, know that they're going to have two-week stretches where they're inside the top 60 and then two-week stretches where they're in the 140 range, and you just kind of have to swallow it all together. Which is why I don't know where Duncan Robinson's going to get drafted next year. He's so incredibly boring to have... Other than hitting a boatload of three-pointers, his specialist nature makes me feel like even though he ended up at number 90 and even though he was incredibly durable and he you know, he played 30 minutes a night and he played every single day and he hit four three-pointers a damn game, he's probably going to get drafted at like 125-130 next year. This dude might somehow end up a member of the old man squad in his third NBA season. Dude was born in 94. He's an older, he was an older rookie even a couple years ago, but still, third year, you didn't join the old man squad after a breakout season. I, I think there's a very real chance that happens. I know that sounds insane and kind of stupid, but, you know, we've, we've, we've seen this happen enough in fantasy circles to understand what people gravitate to, and his fantasy game is just not one that people gravitate to. He'll go at the end of drafts like a couple of Davis Pertanzas did this year. Also coming off the books for Miami, by the way, is the contract of Jay Crowder, which they traded for, and he was actually putting up decent numbers. He's a guy to watch. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see Miami bring him back. I don't know what kind of salary situation they're looking at, but he fits what they like to do there, which is tough. Steals, rebounds, threes, bad field goal percent. I can't tell you whether or not to draft him next year because he could end up in a lot of places. He might end up a backup somewhere. And he desperately needs to be on the floor for 30 minutes a game to come anywhere near fantasy value. The fact that his contract and Goran Dragic's contract are expiring is the only other story worth discussing on this Miami Heat team because when we talked about them this season, 
And we did so often. I mean, think about the last couple of years. We talked about how Spolstra liked to go about, you know, <laughs> well, the entire team deep. And so anytime someone left or got hurt, there was this this immediate bump in fantasy value. And it worked that way with the Heat this year as well, largely with kind of a, a, a quartet of guys. Now, again, they moved some bodies around midseason, so that shifted where some of those bodies were. Uh, but generally, Goran Dragic, Tyler Hero, and Kendrick Nunn could not subsist fantasy-wise when all three of them were healthy. Hence, Nunn was 133 by averages, Dragic 185, Hero number 200. Kendrick Nunn started most of the year, so he would have the clearest path to value uh, with Dragic gone. Tyler Hero has a similar fantasy stat set, but just, well, simply doesn't play as much and doesn't take as many shots, and so that gives Nunn the slight edge in that department. Derek Jones Jr. is always going to be the guy that we're all sort of given a side eye to. Can he actually stay on the floor long enough to have fantasy value? In 24 and a half minutes a game this year, he was number 114, which already tells you, I mean, it tells you quickly and immediately, if he's playing starters minutes, he's a guy that should be used for field goal percent, steals, blocks, uh, some rebounds, very low turnovers, just kind of a weird hyper-athletic off-kilter fantasy stat set that doesn't translate to massive upside because he ain't taking shots and he's not bombing threes and he's not passing and his free throw percent isn't going to help you, might even hurt you on a day-to-day basis. But he has steals, blocks, rebounding, and field goal percent upside, and that's a pretty interesting quartet. So let's assume Jay Crowder doesn't come back. Let's assume Goran Dragic doesn't come back. Does Derek Jones Jr. earn a starting job? I fail to see how he doesn't have close to 30 minutes a game unless they bring someone else around. Because Butler, Adebayo, Duncan Robinson, if those guys are chewing up a bunch of minutes and Kendrick Nunn is chewing up a bunch of minutes, there's kind of an opening on the wing. Or I guess at power forward. That doesn't really make sense for Derek Jones Jr. Maybe they slide Duncan Robinson up. Uh, That was the, the Jay Crowder thing. So I'm inclined to think that they give a guy like Crowder a long look towards coming back. But I really don't know. And if they don't, this might be your weird, oh, hey, maybe Kelly Olynyk shows up to do something once in a while. Although now, I have to admit, he's one of the few guys on this team whose contract situation I hadn't written out prior to the podcast. Uh, yeah, he does have a player option for next year, so he'll probably be back. Maybe he plays center and Adebayo slides down to the four. So there's a possibility there as well. The Heat are a team we really need to see what they're going to do in this abridged offseason with guys like Crowder and Dragic uh, and if that frees up some time. Because I'll tell you right now, if they don't bring those guys back, guys like Jones and Olenek could be really interesting late-round grabs over even someone like Kendrick Nunn, who even in starters minutes just doesn't really have what you'd call the the standard fantasy profile. He has the shooting guard profile, which, as we've talked about before, probably the most difficult fantasy profile to sustain value with of any type, meaning someone who generally scores, hits threes, lower field goal percent, decent free throw numbers. Those are guys that need a, a an absolute truckload of uh, usage to get over the hump. 
Kendrick Nunn took the most shots on the Heat at 13.7, more than Jimmy Butler, and still he couldn't get inside the top 125 in 30 minutes a game because he just he doesn't rebound, no steals, no blocks, really. There just wasn't enough going on there. Whereas, we've seen this before, Kelly Olynyk, he was right there with Goran Dragic in the 180s in only 18 and a half minutes a game. And that's not Rashawn Holmes-level stuff in 18 and a half minutes or Newlands Noel, but you give Olynyk 24, 25 minutes a game, He's a top 100 guy. You give Derek Jones 27, 28 minutes a game, he's probably more like a top 90, top 85 kind of guy. Of course, that all, again, explodes if Jay Crowder comes back. So the Heat, we're going to have to monitor very closely what they do this offseason. I think if you want to talk about two kind of wrap-up points here on Miami, wrap-up number one is how do I feel about each one of these guys as less of a broad overview and individually. Jimmy Butler... I think he'll be accurately drafted next year. Adebayo, I think he'll be slightly overdrafted, but I'm actually okay with it. Duncan Robinson, I think, gets underdrafted next season. There's a usefulness to a guy like that. Uh, And then I don't know if anybody else on this team even gets drafted next year unless we find out where they are. Jay Crowder, if he re-signs, I think he's someone you can grab late as sort of an old man type. Uh, If he re-signs, I don't think you draft. Derek Jones, Kendrick Nunn, Dragic, Olenek, all the rest of those guys. If Crowder and Dragic do not come back, you could make a case to take none in the last round, but I'd rather, again, I'd rather target Jones and uh, Olenek. And the other thing about the Heat, and this is, I think, ties back to, and this is sort of like the lesson learned about a team, is it comes back to sort of our discussion on usage. Well, Jimmy Butler was expecting the big usage bump. He got it. How he decided to divvy it up wasn't necessarily how we expected it to go. He poured more of it into the assist department, but the usage went up. Field goal percent did go down a little bit, but the value, always better. You get more usage, your value's just more consistent. By the way, I think Hoopball was the only site on the planet that had Jimmy Butler averaging under 20 points per game, and he finished right at 20. So Butler hit the Vegas line on that one. He really wasn't shooting that much, though. Nine free throws a game, that was the key. So his usage was sort of buried in secrecy in the free throws and assists. Only 13.4 shots a night, but it uh, belying, as per usual, how often he had the ball in his hand and how much he was doing at the end of the shot clock. So that's your lesson from Miami is, you know, understand what usage really means, how it can manifest itself in different ways, and also understand that you can you know, can be swayed by scoring guys, but I think we did a good job this year of avoiding the Heat players that were more trouble than they were worth. Kendrick Nunn, Tyler Hero, Groen Dragic in particular. Oh, Miami, I know you love to play all of your guys, but someday we'll get you to shorten that rotation just a little bit. Tomorrow... I don't know what you're going to get. Might be another team in the Southeast. Might be a lesson learned from a hoop ball pro. Who knows? Want to also shout out hoop ball gaming making its return with actual sports starting to come back as well. That should be coming up here in the not too distant future. I am Dan Vespers. This was your Tuesday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. Back at you tomorrow with something. TBD. The mighty TBD. At Dan Vespers on Twitter. If you want to hit me up, follow me there. Or, by the way, if you want to reach out to us about anything here at HoopBall, teamhoopball at hoopball uh, at hoop-ball.com is the email address. Again, teamhoopball 
at hoop-ball.com. Wanted to make a quick clarion call. If you are an HR, human resources manager, shoot me a line. I have a question for you, particularly someone in California. California-based HR people. Hit me up. Uh, again, I'm Dan Vespers. This is a Hoopball presentation. Back at you tomorrow on Wednesday. So long, everybody. This has been a Hoopball presentation.